Are you fascinated by the world of food? Do you dream of traveling across the United States having a once-in-a-lifetime culinary experience? Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. This is Michael Gordon-Bennett coming to you from Las Vegas, Nevada, the fully opened at Las Vegas, Nevada, I might add. And I am joined, as always, by the Barbados Flash via the Big Apple, Dave Cumberbatch. Dave, 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 my friend, Vegas is open, and I actually drove on the Strip yesterday on my way through town. I just wanted to see the crowds are massive. Yeah, we've got our two shots of co- of the COVID vaccine, so we can be comfortable taking our mask off. Uh, you know what? There are so many people on the strip. I'm not even sure I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I, I was <laughs> I was astounded by the uh, number of people I saw yesterday. I mean, thousands upon thousands. Uh, of course, you know, it's 90 degrees here, and you know, so people are freely walking around outdoors with their alcoholic beverage of choice in hand, and uh, I. The air traffic, I mean, I'm, I can see the flight path from McCarran from my from where I'm sitting right now in my office here. And uh, there's a plane like every 30 seconds. This is wow. the wow. rebound wow. Is, is now there's still shows not happening. There are certain, um, you know, venues and stuff that are still not happening. But like Bruno Mars is scheduled to be here in July, sold out. Uh, John Legend is here in September, sold out. Sold out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this, <laughs> this place is this place is just booming, man. Um, Talking about Vegas and food and entertainment, question for you. Do you consider yourself to be a food junkie? Uh, only if that involves the eating side of the equation. <laughs> <laughs> so, if it's the cooking side, <laughs> hell no. <laughs> oh, okay, so my next question is, do you live to eat or do you eat to live? And the reason I'm asking you, I know that your significant other, you talk about her in the show all the time, She's a huge George, um, Gordon Ramsay fan. Um, if you guys live, as you guys live in Vegas, where there are two Gordon Ramsay restaurants, would you plan your vacation around a specific restaurant, sort of like the caliber of a Gordon Ramsay restaurant? She would, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I mean, one of the things about Vegas, if you have a little bit of money in your pocket and you starve, that's your damn fault. There are more <laughs> restaurants here than any place I have ever been. And they're and they're pretty good quality places. It's not New York in terms of, you know, the ambiance of a lot of the places. But, man, you just can't starve here, man. It's just a restaurant in every corner. And me personally, I'm not a strip person. I don't gamble. Even though I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, I was born there long before the casino showed up. So for me, gambling is nothing. And, you know, living here for 10 years, I still don't gamble. I only go down there for shows. And maybe the occasional meal or taking her to one of Ramsey's thousands of uh, restaurants here in town for her to eat. Otherwise, nah, not me. Not my thing. When I come to Vegas, I come to eat, man. You know me. I'm a, I'm a uh, semi-chef. <laughs> that, that, well, that, that's because your ass ain't got any money, man. That's like- <laughs> there you go. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, uh, we're talking about food, so uh, uh, which is a segue into our guest today who I want to introduce. But let me do my typical housekeeping notes before we bring him on. Um, you can catch our podcast on pretty much every single platform known to man. Or you can just simply go to our website, tripcast360.com. That's tripcast360.com. We post every Monday uh, new shows. And so you can check us out there. 
Um, and before Dave tells you about uh, our social media uh uh, handles and things of that sort. I have one special announcement to make. We've been promising a photo of the month contest for about half this year already. Well, we're finally ready to embark upon that beginning June 1st. It'll be an Instagram contest and uh, there's a $50 gift certificate or a gift card attached to it. And what you're going to have to do is guess where we are. The first person to guess will get that certificate. Um, and uh, it's an Instagram contest. So one of the requirements, and you can actually go to it now, is go to Instagram and follow us. If you don't That's follow right. us, you have zero chance of winning because I will not let it happen. So that will be uh, one uh, thing. And the rules for the contest will be posted uh, on our website this week and uh, you'll start seeing some promo ads for that contest as well. So uh, please head over to Instagram and follow us to get the process started and the details to come. Uh, Dave, social media, other newsletter, other places to find us. Let them know. Yeah. Yeah. But you just talked about Instagram, but we want our, we want our audience to know they can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And when you go there, don't just follow us, but like us, message us, and tag us. And um, to begin receiving our newsletter, go to our website, tripcast360.com, and just sign up. We are focusing on the podcast, but we are more than a podcast. Our website is a unique consumer-friendly approach that provides our audience with the information they can use either to purchase products or just have a good old fun time hearing and reading about or traveler experiences. How about that? Yeah, I love it. And uh, you actually hit on something that uh, is also coming in a few weeks as we are set to open our own store. Uh, details mm -hmm. to come on that as well. We're working in the background with uh, various uh, uh, providers of travel services, merchandise, and things <laughs> of that sort. So we will make that announcement at the appropriate time, but definitely uh, uh, hit us up. And without further ado, let's get our guest. And we've kept him waiting for about five minutes now. He's a two-time Emmy winner, creator, and former producer of the hit Food Channel series, Diners. Who did I try that again? Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives with Guy Fieri. I should not mess that up, considering my girlfriend watches every single show, including all the reruns. David uh, Page also worked previously as a news producer for both ABC and NBC, and was based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, to name a few of his international locales. Today, he's become one of America's foremost food journalists and has a great book out called Food Americana, which we will discuss, where mm -hmm. he writes about everything from pizza to sushi. David, welcome, man. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, you're most welcome. Michael just mentioned you're the creator of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and you're the author of that Food book. Food Americana. I'm, I'm telling you, right? You're a longtime journalist. Uh, your mantra has been live to eat instead of eat to live. <laughs> yeah, I've always been one of those. Uh, why, why waste a meal? You might as well have something good and enjoy it. I'm not one of these guys who uh, they say, what do you want to eat? And I say, ah, I don't care. It's all the same. Fuel. No. <laughs> Did you talk about restaurants reopening in Vegas. One of the best meals I ever had in my life was in Vegas. And I'm not usually a devotee of celebrity name joints, but I had a meal at Guy Savoie mm. in, in Vegas on the strip. That was literally unbelievable, Tru truly mm. a remarkable meal. And the best part was 
we were there pitching a business project and our agent was paying. Ooh, that's even better. It was, better. Like, it nice. was like two grand for three people. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, that's even better. Food is sometimes even the centerpiece of a travel experience, but it's as much stumbling into someplace that is feeding local residents the real food they really eat. That that does it for me. My my wife and I, uh, our last international trip was to Spain a couple of years ago, before, obviously before the pandemic, and we ate in remarkable restaurants. But but you know one of the best dishes I had was this thing they do where they they bring out um, crunchy bread and they cut a tomato in half and they they take that the open face half of it and they rub it across the bread. And add some olive oil and a touch of salt. That's a remarkable meal. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're talking to a kid who spent three years in Spain. I okay. Know so, exactly you know, exactly what you're talking about. Had barnacles for the first time on this trip. Really? I'd really? Never, yeah. I think it was in the, I think it was Valencia. We were in the, you know, the central food market. And I'd never had barnacles before and didn't know you could eat them. I just thought they were something you scraped off ships. Um, but it, it's like eating a crab in right. that basically you crack this shell and there's some very sweet meat inside. Wow. wow. My girlfriend was born in Valencia, by the way. What, do you, what, what did you think overall of Valencia? Oh, I, lo- I, I adored Valencia. I, I went through, it was a strange cultural experience, though, because my wife and I decided to travel during the second half of the Jewish holidays. So I actually found us a small synagogue in Valencia that invited us for Yom Kippur services. Mm-hmm. And there's been a pretty big anti-Semitism, violent anti-Semitism wave going through Europe. So uh, the, the, this very small congregation, just a few people, they, they meet in an unmarked office in just a generic building to have their services. But they welcomed us with such open arms. And then, mm. uh, God shouldn't get PO'd, but um, our break the fast meal after Yom Kippur was Yamoni Bedeko, <laughs> Spanish ham. So, you know, we made a completely cross-cultural trip. Right, right. I can't get enough of that. We uh, spent a day on the water, you know, just sitting on the beach. And there was a little restaurant a shack where a guy was basically just um, grilling fresh fish over a fire. And it was just, I, I love Spain. I, I think Spain to most Americans is an undiscovered gem. And when I lived yes. in Germany, when I got burned out, I used to go to, to Torremolinos, a little town in Spain near Marbella, but not near the tourists and just chill. I've, I've always loved Spain. Yeah. I, I would go, matter of fact, I'm certain I'm going to go back as soon as COVID is over. Is clamoring to go back and visit her relatives in Valencia. So time to I, go. I, time to hit the road. We're we're both vaccinated anyway. Um, I I I'm going to make a pivot back to food because that one of the big reasons you're here. What got you interested in the food journalism uh, category, if you will, in the first place? Um, it was a complete accident. I um, when I was working. In Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, that's when I really began to develop an appreciation for food. I mean, I, I liked to eat, obviously, before I went over, but 
I started to see how specifically defined individual food cultures were, and I began to see food as the real gateway to understanding or beginning to understand a society or a culture. I brought that back with me when I came back to the States. I, I worked as a show producer at NBC, then at ABC. When I finally decided to, to give up a steady paycheck and move on to running my own production company, I, I made the move, which basically um, boils down to saying I quit. And mm -hmm. I declared myself a production company, which meant I was an unemployed former producer. Uh, and I, you know, I dutifully went to my office every day and wrote these pitches to all these networks that nobody answered. And as the money began to dwindle, uh, I started looking for low hanging fruit. Like, <laughs> is there somebody who would hire me to do some freelance work? And I had worked with Al Roker. He was the uh, weather guy mm -hmm. on the weekend editions of the Today Show which a partner and I created and ran. So Al and I were, were pretty close and he had established a production company on the side. Now, by this time he'd gone on to the main today show, but I called him up and I said, look, I'm starving. You got any work? And he said, yeah, I'm doing stuff for the food network. Why don't you do some of that for mm. Um, And thus I was a food journalist. I mean, in this business, you're whatever you were last. I was a local reporter. Then I was an investigative reporter. Then I was a foreign journalist. Then I was a, an investigative guy again. Then I, then I was uh, an entertainment reporter. The point is, you're whatever you did. So I ended up working for Al, doing segments for the Food Network through him, began to develop um, a real appreciation for this kind of work, and decided that I was really going to have to take the plunge myself and, and start pitching the Food Network directly, which I did extensively. And remarkably unacceptable. Uh, there was a, a nice woman who was a development executive there who would take my phone calls. And every phone call was, hey, I got these great ideas. Listen. And it, from her end of the phone would come, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Until one day I had done something for, um, for them throughout uh, an hour on the history of diners. And in the middle of a, another pitch phone call where she was saying, no, no, no. She said to me, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh yeah, I've been developing this show called diners, drive-ins and dive. And I told her a little about it. She said, you know, that sounds pretty good. We, we have a meeting Tuesday. Get me a write-up on Monday. Now this was either late Thursday or late Friday. I'm not sure which. And I got off the phone. And this would sound like good news. The only problem was I had not been developing a show called Diners. <laughs> I had just invented the name, pulled it out of thin air or a body part, however you want to picture the grand <laughs> event. And I spent the weekend making phone calls. Back in those days, you actually called. It was um, We were less email or text dependent. So I made a bunch of phone calls and on Monday I submitted a pitch and not that long after that, they, they picked it up for a one hour special, mm. um, which was great news. Uh, and the special did well. Uh, I, n nobody knew how it would do. They, they didn't know what they were getting into, but they wanted to, they wanted to keep Guy Fieri's face in front of the public. 
he had just won their Food Network Star Contest, and they were looking for something to him to do in, for him to do in prime time, which was not my project. They had asked two of the big name production companies, uh, you know, the big boys who wear long pants and have lawyers, to to propose uh, to each propose a primetime show, and they each did, and uh, the network didn't like the proposal. At that time, Diners had aired; it had done well, so they they picked up a short season of it because basically they had nothing else to do with Guy. And I'm sure their plan was to keep looking for a better vehicle. But Diners was a surprise hit. Now, they said to me after the ratings for the second episode had come in and were good that, you know, look, this is great, but clearly there aren't going to be enough restaurants that qualify in America for this show to have legs. You know, if we're lucky, we'll get a second season out of it, maybe even a third. <laughs> I stayed with it through season 11. I think it's now in season 30 something. So, wow. I'd rather take, be lucky than good. That's right. That's right. Take us, take us through the process, the thought process. I know you, you, you made the name up. You were surprised. But take, take us through not the concept, but the mm. thought process going through your head in terms of putting this show together. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, I loved food. Still do. Um, and I had a, uh, a preference for family restaurants, homemade food, good, solid cooking. Didn't have to be anything fancy. I wanted to, and television at its best, especially reality television, is simply voyeurism. It is mm -hmm. taking people inside something to hang out at that event or time or place with someone they like. Guy's a terrific talent. He's someone people like. So we had that part taken care of. The rest of it was I wanted it to be engaging, comfortable, warm. I wanted it to be completely honest. Everything, to the best of my knowledge, and every show we put on the air was true. Hmm. And I wanted people to feel like they were right there. So you can't smell food on television. You can't taste food on television. I was reduced basically to two senses. Sight. I wanted to make the food as legitimately pretty as possible which in many cases means cleaning up what is otherwise a perfectly clean restaurant kitchen. Mm -hmm. Most restaurant kitchens are filled with blackened pans and bent spoons <laughs> and non-unsanitary seeming stains. How to get rid of those for each shoot because the audience doesn't understand that that isn't dirty. More important, obviously, was how we photograph the food itself. And uh, I spent a tremendous amount of time focusing on that. We, we, I prefer to shoot with one camera, not three, because they shoot movies with one camera, because you can um, control your lighting and your framing in a way you can't when you're making room for three cameras. So when you shoot with one camera, you have to do things multiple times. 
we would make each dish a minimum of four times for different angles. And one of those times was simply the camera on a tripod. Drives me nuts when food video shakes on TV. Mm -hmm. Looking directly at the food being made. It was nothing but what we in the industry call food porn. So I could always go to beautiful, sizzling, bubbling food to make this enticing. But the other thing, the, the, the sense that people tend to ignore when it comes to making television is sound. A contiguous soundtrack will defeat three pictures that shouldn't go in a row because as long as your ear hears that one event is happening, it's one event. What I did that I'm proud to say was not generally done in making food shows was I focused specifically on the audio. We did 23 hours of audio post-production on every episode. That's 23 hours for 30 minutes to make sure that every time a fork hit a plate, you heard a clink. And Mm. every time a burger hit a grill, first you heard the plop, and then you heard the The, sizzle getting really loud. And then you would hear the, the sound of the spatula scraping as it pulled away. And by the time you put all that together, that is actually the way I was able to make people feel as if they were present where the food was being made. It's subtle. It's psychological. One of the most important things we did. And it's far more technical an answer than you wanted. I'm sorry. That's okay. No, that, no, that's, no, no, that's as a producer, I love it. I love that expose <laughs> on on audio because I agree with you. <laughs> How much does someone like guy that has guy's personality? How much does that play into the success of that show? A show like like it's, that? Show? It's critical. It's critical. If guy didn't have an intrinsic, people friendly, eager personality, we'd have fallen flat. Um, when I inherited Guy, he was green as the grass, but he had more natural born television talent than anyone else I've ever worked with. As I often tell producers, if you have it, then I can help you become great. But you have to have it to start with. I, I mean, almost anyone can be trained in the nuts and bolts of making a TV show. But if you don't feel it, you don't feel it. And guy's remarkable. He's just incredible. Yeah, and and it shows across that camera. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he he's he, astonishing. That that camera loves him. Oh yeah, it really really does. And um, in terms of the diners themselves, I maybe it's just me. I, I've traveled all over the country. I've had the fortune of being a military brat plus a vet myself. So I've pretty much lived in or been in every state in the country except two. And um, I got to tell you, those small, out-of-the-way places are some of the best eats in America. Well, they are, um, because one of the things necessary for food to be exceptional is the passion of the people producing. And when you get to a multi-generational, family-owned restaurant that takes great pride in making what they make, it's not going to get the, the damn shame is that many of them did not survive the pandemic. You know, this is a low margin business. Yes. I was actually surprised and pleased when we first started doing diners 
to hear that the show had saved a number of restaurants that were on the verge of going out of business. Um, today, I'm extremely worried. Uh, I mean, I had to drop a couple of locations from my book because between the time I profiled them and the time we locked the galley, COVID had killed them. Um, and, you know, it try- I wish people would do more than talk a good game about where you really want it. I'll, I'll tell you a story. When my daughter was graduating undergrad from, from Columbia, New York, oh. mm. she's about to graduate with her MFA from Columbia. <laughs> Hence, <laughs> I have no money left. Uh, <laughs> this is it. Um, but, but at her graduation, I was the designated go get breakfast sandwiches for everybody guy. Now, in New York, a breakfast sandwich is a thing of beauty. First of all, the rolls you get, just the average roll, breakfast roll in New York is a remarkable thing. And um, every place you go, someone is making a breakfast sandwich fresh. We have in New York what's called a bodega, which is, um, it's a convenience store. Yeah. But it's uh, the kind of convenience store that started in food deserts uh, as, as a way to provide basics uh in places where key foods wouldn't open and now pretty much any convenience store in new york is thought of as a bodega mm-hmm. anyway i go across the street and there's there's two storefronts side by side one of them has this massive line coming out the door and down the sidewalk the other one nothing there's nobody there well the one to the left was starbucks where people were paying $392,000 to get some undefinable petroleum-based breakfast thing microwave. The one I went into, which had no line, was a bodega, where this guy behind the grill was cracking the eggs fresh and making these gorgeous bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches, which I was able to, in an instant, get, pay for, take across the street, cheaper than Starbucks. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell? Why don't people understand where and what the good food really is? Mm-hmm. There's nothing. That breakfast sandwich is perfect. It's just, it's a perfect thing. The same way a Twix bar out of the freezer is a perfect thing. There's just some stuff on the face of the earth that, or a, a um, fried oyster po'boy po boy at guys in New Orleans. I mean, there's some things on earth that are perfect, and a breakfast sandwich made in front of you in New York is a perfect. Wow. You just used the phrase, the term, good food. Mm-hmm. What do you consider to be good food? It has always puzzled me mm-hmm. why the most unhealthy food seem to dominate our, <laughs> our diet. Oh. Michael's laughing. <laughs> if you're talking about fast food, mm-hmm. that is, um, in my view, a result of the same forces that brought us the space race. Um, after World War II, uh, the majority of Americans, as in truly majority, because this did not apply to minority groups who, for example, could not qualify for the GI Bill because yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. they had their own skin color. Uh, but For the majority of America, which was white and all gung-ho and wearing preppy sweaters, the time after the Second World War was a time of immense growth and optimism. And 
that was embodied in a general belief that everything nifty and new and scientific was going to be great. And it brought us things like TV dinners. Uh, and it also brought us interstate highways. And next to those interstate highways, we mm-hmm. developed a system of fast food restaurants feeding the traveling public. And because of the times we were in, they were just cooler than cool. And they represented the American dream. And we kind of signed on to them. And over time, not just the fast food restaurants, but the entire industry, either intentionally or accidentally by falling into what works, addicted us to fat, salt, and sugar. Mm. And we now look for fat, salt, and sugar as the basis of our diets. It's a shame. And by the way, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. There are times in life when some fast food junk is perfect. Now, there's still better fast food junk than other fast food junk. I think In-N-Out is a good meal. Uh, It probably has its requisite too much salt because it is fast food. But I got to tell you, they make them out of fresh beef. And at two in the morning, after you may have had one cocktail too many, sitting on the hood of your car, eating a double-double animal style with animal style fries is an unbeatable experience. Uh, we've just, and, and we, we also, we developed as a society, and this is much broader than food, we prize a sense of being busy, not having time. You know, they, they do the studies. Europeans with shorter work weeks achieve more in those work weeks than we do. But we love running around and feeling pressured and feeling like we're we're just on top of it. Can't catch up, but we're on top of it. That all plays into the, the fast food. Now, there are attempts underway to provide better fast food. In the book, I deal with what's called the better burger niche of the market, which is Places like Smashburger or Five Guys telling you that they're using a higher quality of beef, that it isn't frozen. Although I talk to a bunch of food scientists who tell me in the real world, after you put it on a bun with a bunch of condiments, good luck deciding, <laughs> telling me whether it's frozen or not. Um, but, but there is more emphasis on the quality of the food and in many cases, the sustainability of the food and way it, the way it's being produced. But you also need to, a lot of stuff gets gets cobbled together. The fact that something is sustainably raised doesn't necessarily make it better food. Mm-hmm. It may be, mm-hmm. and it may be better for the earth, but uh, you, you got to figure out why you're choosing to eat what and for what reason. And there's a guy, um, he may be the leading analyst of the, of the food industry in America. He's certainly one of them. A guy named David Portolat, and I quote in the book, and he says, you know, we, we love to eat chicken telling ourselves it's healthier, but then we fry it. <laughs> you know, so, okay. <laughs> a boiled potato is probably not that bad for you, but, or he also says, he's got another line, he says, Americans love to try new things as long as they already know them. 
which is why <laughs> the fried chicken sandwich was poised yeah. to take off. We already loved fried chicken. Now here's this new shiny toy mm-hmm. that's a fried chicken sandwich. And and the explosion in that item continued. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, well, between, between the fried chicken that you just tempted me with, which I can't eat, and the in and out which is less than two miles from my front door, uh, I think I'm going to have to make a little trip after this uh, podcast is over. Well, in and out <laughs> But see, I haven't decided in my own mind whether in and out is as great as I think it is, or this is just the you can't get it here complex. Because remember, right. when Coors beer was not shipped east of the Rockies, we all clamored for it. And on the rare occasion we got a can of Coors, we were in heaven. Now that I can get it here every day, I won't drink this stuff. It's yellow water. <laughs> I got to tell you, as a kid who graduated from high school in Colorado, all we heard about was Coors beer. Coors right. beer. Coors beer. I'm like you, can't stand the stuff. But you tell somebody in Colorado that, they'll slit your throat. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, hey, there's, some, there's some great beer. In, I did another show called Beer Geeks about craft uh, beer. And we spent a fair amount of time in Colorado. You have some excellent breweries. Yeah, yeah they do. It's just yeah. me, and, me and Coors are not friends. I, I wanted to ask you before we uh, uh, make a couple more pivots here. We were talking about the better burger niche and all that stuff like that. I... My doctor got after me earlier this year and told me to cut out the cholesterol because my cholesterol was well over 300. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, hello. I've lost 26 pounds in three months. Congratulations. Uh, just, just by changing my diet. And I've always been a great athlete. So the losing of the weight was not that difficult for me to do. I just had to change my diet and continue exercising. I say all that to you to ask this question. You had touched, I read somewhere in one of, I don't know if it was in your book or some correspondence somewhere where they're all of a sudden introducing meatless burgers and meatless meats and stuff. And that's one of the things my doctor tried to get me to try. And I have tried it a little bit. And Mm. some of it's rather tasty. What I'm wondering is how healthy it really is. Well, I'm not an expert on this, but I have read enough to know that a number of people are raising questions about how processed meatless meat is. If you're trying to stay away from processed foods, that that's an issue to look at. Um, they're they're certainly healthier for the planet because mm-hmm. that's another cow that didn't exist to to release methane into the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. The 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 I'm always confused with substitutes. In other words. When someone tells me they're vegan or even vegetarian and then goes on and on at some length about this wonderful fake bacon that's made of tempeh, soy, whatever, I I have to evaluate what it is about the eating process that is good or bad or or should be changed. If you want to eat some bacon, it seems to me, you're better off eating bacon that tastes like bacon, but in a nod to your cholesterol and the health of the world. Not that often. Uh, I, I'm not a big one for substitutes. Now, there will always be people who want a meatless alternative. I think the niche is growing faster than I predicted. You're seeing most of the fast food operators signing on in one way or another. I'm not sure if most is fair, but certainly a, a lot of them. And to my surprise uh mcdonald's which was a holdout 
recently did a test of a meatless burger called McPlant in Scandinavia. Mm. Not know why they picked Scandinavia. It's possible reindeer tastes like plant. I don't know. But um, so it's here to stay. I mean, I had one restaurant tour talk to me. It may have been about a meatless alternative. It was about something it was saying that you have to have something on your menu to keep the group from being vetoed. In other words, if there's five people going out, four of them will eat anything and one's a vegetarian, you better have one item on your menu for that one person who holds the veto over the whole group. And I, I do believe the niche will continue to grow. I'm I'm cynical. I, I just, in my own mind, don't think I'm going to live to see a time where meat is replaced by plant-based protein, but I could be wrong. I mean, you know, yeah. I have no crystal ball. I mean, that there are certain places like Cal. Anybody who lives in Southern California knows they're about as health conscious a group as anybody in America. Everybody, <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to look like a celebrity. So, you know, they, they introduce all this stuff down there. And, and I've had, I had a burger the other day that was quinoa based, which was actually pretty tasty. Um, you know, back when I was in sixth grade in Atlantic City, New Jersey, they introduced soy burgers to the school trying to change our diet. And of course, the students revolted. Uh, so there's always been this touch for, but now that I'm having the cholesterol battle, now I'm looking for these alternatives, actively looking for these alternatives. To Even though that. some scientists tell you that your cholesterol has nothing to do with the cholesterol level of the food you ingest. You, you ingest, yeah. And they, and they um, but hey. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that too. <laughs> I take a statin. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, me too. Uh, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, they, they they gave me that about five months ago now. Yeah. yeah. While I was doing my research for the podcast, David, mm-hmm. I came I came across quite a bit that I um focus on Texas mm-hmm. and tech and, and Texas barbecues. Mm-hmm. What what influence does Texas have on our on our summertime activities, you know, from a food perspective where we go to parks and we have barbecues, et cetera. Yeah. But what we do when we barbecue, we don't barbecue, we grill. Barbecue by definition is, is low and slow. Um, Meat over a low fire for a long period of time. When we go out in the backyard and we put something on the grill, that's direct heat. That that's not barbecuing. On the other hand, uh, Grilling's great. And the definitions of barbecue are what I just said, except when they're not. For example, there's a noted barbecue pitmaster. The, the name escapes me at the moment. I, I don't want to give you the wrong one, but one one of the extremely famous Carolina pitmasters who is famous for whole hog done directly over the fire at high heat. Okay. If you go to Memphis, the most famous ribs in town are going to be at the rendezvous where they're cooked over direct heat in what used to be a coal chute. And the only reason they started making ribs, because Charlie Vertigos, who who bought the building, said, I'd be able to do something with this. Uh, So everything has an exception. Now, Texas has an outsized influence on us culinarily simply because it's massive. I mean, I was working out of the Houston Bureau. Was it out of the Bureau? Anyway, either I or somebody in the Houston Bureau told the story of getting a call from New York 
because they were the Texas Bureau, saying, get to El Paso right away. And the guy in the Bureau telling New York, well, okay, but L.A. is a lot closer to El Paso than we are. That's true. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Very true. But te- and Texas has that cultural thing. You know, it's we're, everything's bigger in Texas. Texas is an outside place. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that the bar, first of all, Brisket is not the only Texas barbecue. There are several <laughs> kinds of barbecue in Texas, depending upon where you are and what was available there at the time. Brisket and sausage are the signature barbecue items of Central Texas. And to my mind, personally, the best items in the entire world of barbecue. But that's just Central Texas. Get pork barbecue in Texas. You, if you're lucky, you can you can get. And the Spanish name is going to escape me, but in in southern Texas, some places will still um, barbecue a cow's head underground. Oh in, yeah, uh, in um, a pit. And yeah, I want to say cabrito, but that's the Spanish word for uh, goat. I, I lived uh, in San Antonio for eight yeah, years. I it's. Uh, I'll 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 get there anyway. Um, you can still get that in Texas. The the Central Texas thing was um, really a result of the migration of German and Czech immigrants to that part of Texas and the invention of the modern meatpacking industry, which made it possible to sell cuts instead of carcasses. Mm-hmm. So now you could just order yourself a case of briskets which were ordered because they were the cheapest, toughest meat possible. Just the same way I learned this uh, when we were doing a diner's piece at Louis Miller's Barbecue in Taylor, Texas, which is one of the greatest barbecue joints in the universe. They make their sausage out of bull meat. Um, the allegation is it's got a coarser texture so it's better to chew no it's the cheap leftover stuff no one knew what to do <laughs> so when a bull drops dead you, you take the meat and, and when you make a sausage you mix in whatever amount of fat you want the fat is a separate element right. mixed in with the meat when you're making a sausage so the the best sausage is made of bull meat wow. for economic reasons right have have you ever tasted any food that you found completely totally disgusted that didn't agree with your with your palate or your stomach? I have a hard time eating brains, but that's because I know what it is. <laughs> what, no, oh, seriously. Gee. When I when I was a young kid, mm-hmm. my Eastern European Jewish grandmother would make brains, and um, it's just organ meat. I mean, it's. But once she told me what it was, I I, I couldn't eat it. Um, Sometimes I have trouble with blood sausage. Sometimes I don't. Um, When I was for the Chinese food chapter, I was taken to a huge Chinese food hall serving Chinese immigrants, not not targeting Americans, where the food was as close as it could be given available ingredients to the foods that are now served in China. And I had uh, a disc of duck blood, which name aside, it was kind of like a metallic liverwurst. It was fine. Um, I had, I think, artery, tendon. It was all in 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 um, uh, a dish called dry pot, which is you kind of pick your ingredients, and and it it was fabulous. Yesterday, I I went to um, 
went to a Vietnamese restaurant with my wife and a friend and ordered um, pho, you know, the soup. And they had, uh, the one I ordered was pork, pork heart, and pork liver. And uh, I will confess there were a couple of chews that I wasn't certain about, <laughs> but overall it was damn good. Nice. <laughs> a couple of chews. Yeah, there was one piece that may have been an entire ventricle. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's that's my thought about brains. Chew once out. <laughs> no, but it's like. Look, I love sweetbreads. That's pituitary yeah. gland. Some people yeah. find that disgusting. Yeah. Mm. Depends mm. what you've got a stomach mm-hmm. for. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what, I, I, I saw a podcast you were on recently, uh, and you were talking about what young people now think of as American cuisine. And one of the things mm-hmm. you mentioned in there was sushi. Yeah, sushi's American. Yeah. And, no, uh, one of the top executives at the company that makes the most pre-prepared sushi in the country was telling me that uh, her daughter, you know, when she herself was a kid, presumably high school age, if she and her friends were going to run out and grab a quick lunch, it was burgers for her kids today. It's sushi. Sushi is quintessentially American. Now that is usually in the form of a roll. Uh, as opposed to nigiri, which is um, your topping on rice. And by the way, sushi doesn't have to include any fish at all. Sushi, sushi refers to vinegared rice, but most Americans think of it as as with raw fish. But no, uh, sushi rolls uh, are as American as can be, especially one of the points of my book is that we've created a cuisine from the cuisines of other countries and cultures. But that's not static. The first thing we do to someone else's food is modify it mm-hmm. to our tastes, um, to available ingredients. There are things, I mean, the first immigrants to make pizza were from Southern Italy, from Naples. And when they arrived here, as with most immigrants, they looked to replicate their comfort foods. But ovens were different here than they were in Naples. The wheat was different here, uh, a higher protein level, and the cheese that they were used to back home would not survive a transatlantic boat trip. So right off the bat, you were making a crunchier, chewier crust, a crust, there's no P in the word crust, with uh, <laughs> topped with different cheese and, and topped with much more in terms of available ingredients because the Italian word abbondanza, which means abundance. One of the things that poor Italian immigrants found here was that poverty in the U.S. was quite different than poverty in Southern Italy. And even the poor in New York could afford to have things like meat, which was unheard of in Sicily at that time. If you were lucky and you had a few extra bucks, the topping, you might put a sardine or two on top of your pizza or maybe a piece of lard. The availability of food stuff here was shocking, which is why today so much of what we think of as Italian-American food is mountainous because the first thing these immigrants did was say, if I can have all this food, let's cook with it. That's why um, 
the traditional spaghetti sauce, at least in New Jersey where I live, is Sunday sauce, which is ham, uh, not ham, pork, pork ribs, pork sausage. The base of, of, of the sauce is, is enough food for a week because it was there. You could have it. Um, so I don't know where the hell I started this answer, but I guess <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> now we, we started on sushi and went to pizza, which is where I was going next anyway. Oh, so okay, fine. <laughs> because you, you also talk about that great American cuisine we, uh, of, of pizza and, um, it, you know, you're, you're in New Jersey, New York area, you know, the people in Chicago got their take on pizza. The people in California got their take on pizza with the pineapples on it and stuff like that. Where in the hell did all these derivations of pizza come from? Well, they, they came from uh, uh, the process we use with everything. As it moves from place to place, it's modified by location. In other words, in St. Louis, pizza is topped with Provel cheese. That is an American process, not, not processed American. It is an American product processed cheese that uh, I've never had, so I, I can't describe the taste, but it's not any kind of cheese you'd think of as Italian. The reason it's used is because that's what was in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Every place pizza goes, it, it's pizza's a blank canvas. You can do pretty much anything you want to it. Um, now, we all know that pineapple is a crime against nature <laughs> and should be prosecuted. On the other hand, uh, in 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 California, that's where so-called gourmet pizza began. That's where a guy named Ed Ledoux, as the pizza maker for Wolfgang Puck, began mm. creating things like smoked salmon pizza. And it's amazing. It's it's you know it's remarkable stuff. Every place, pizza is such a basic food. It's so easy to make your own. There's Detroit pizza now, which is incredibly popular over the last few years, which was first made in these blue metal tins that had been liberated from an auto parts shop. That's how that got made. Wow. Yeah. It's in, um, in Pennsylvania, there's a town called Old Forge where somebody decided to make a kind of a pan pizza for the, the coal miners. It started in one woman's kitchen and became a style of pizza. It's a deep dish pizza, which uses another kind of um, processed cheese. The legend I have been unable to confirm is that that started when the government cheese program, which you may recall, was providing blocks of this cheese as part of a poverty program. I I cannot confirm that story. It just sounds too good not to be true. Nonetheless, they have a red version of this pie where the sauce is on top of the cheese. They have a white version of this pie, which is ungodly good, where the dough is folded over and the cheese is in the middle and it's um, seasoned with like thyme, I think. This is incredible pizza. It's oh got nothing gosh. to do with pizza in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I order it on Goldbelly. I mean, it's I pay that kind of a premium 
to get a shot at uh, Old Forge Pizza. Really good. Some folks write books to make money. Other folks write books because well, I wouldn't mind if I mean I'm not I'm not looking to write a law. Keep going. Other folks write books simply to share knowledge. Um, why did you decide to write this book? So, I mean, I was reading a review by George Stephanopoulos from Good Morning yes. America, and he says terrific food journalism. The book uncovers the untold backstories of American food. A great read. So I love um, I'm 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 telling you. So I'm circling the wagons here to ask you why did you write this book? Because it had been percolating in my head forever. And the dirty little secret most television producers won't tell you is they all think they got a book in them. Writing for TV is a very specific kind of writing where if you're good the words are virtually invisible. The words are simply supposed to propel you from one experience to the next as seamlessly as possible. And it requires special skill to work with pictures and, and make that work, I believe, requires a tremendous amount of talent. However, there isn't a TV producer on earth who hasn't said to himself, to hell with all that. Can't I just sit down and start typing and tell you a story in my own way? Um, so I had a little bit of that. I've also been a shapeshifter. I, I need to change careers every few years. And it seemed like time. I, my interest in food had never lessened. Uh, it had increased over time. And I finally forced myself to sit down and start. And I did not realize in my naivete that, you know, some people pick a book on one subject. I picked a book where each of the chapters was a different subject. So I ended up pretty much researching 12 books, which was a hell of a lot of work for my first <laughs> effort. The, the research and writing took two years. But I'm very pleased with what, what I ended up with. I learned a hell of a lot, made a lot of good friends along the way. So it was a, it's a nice trip. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I don't know if we would have had you as a guest if you hadn't written this book. Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Good to be had. Yeah. And, 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 and Dave used the phrase in, in the intro to the question he asked about you wrote the uh, people, some people write books to make money. I don't know about you, but I've written two books and I made some money, but I sure as hell didn't get rich off. I had one of them. <laughs> well, it, it did start as a labor of love, but anyone who wants to can go to Amazon.com and buy Food Americana. Buy several copies. Give them to your friends. That's right. That, that, that segment is called the shameless plug, which I was going to do anyway. <laughs> there is a Jewish word called chutzpah. chutzpah you that's right. Kill your mother and father and throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Because <laughs> the court. Well, uh, well sp speaking of books, I'm glad you did that because we were going to promote it anyway. And by the way, for those listening, we will have all of the uh, contacts to where you can get the book on our write-up for this podcast. So if you missed it, we've got you covered. Um, what's next for you? I have another book. I have a book that I can't tell you about it because then I'd have to kill you. Oh, but boy. it it I mean, evolved again. Damn. Um, go right. ahead. <laughs> it evolved. It evolved from this one. 
Um, and also tangentially, I've stumbled into a cookbook project as well with nice someone who is an expert in a particular kind of cooking. But um, the long term project is uh, is going to be another one of those books where every chapter could have been a book of its own. <laughs> I just don't learn. <laughs> we have a long standing joke here. I'm doing a podcast. We 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 always talk about um adult beverages. Yes. Any any ideas about writing a book on wines and liquors, etc.? I'd love to do that at some point, but I'd have to find an angle to it because I'm an expert in neither, and there are an awful lot of books out there telling you um what wines go with what and how to make cocktails. I would love to find, I mean, the the key to the stuff I want to write is the human stories behind it. Maybe it's the guys who invented the 10 greatest cocktails of all time. Maybe it's a birth story of a particular kind of drink. Um, because I have been known to, to have a drink or two. No, yeah, yeah. Nothing wrong with that. Well, that's actually a perfect segue before I let you go. Cause I didn't want to let you get away without this. Talk to us about beer geeks because you actually, uh, they just kind of led right into that. And mm-hmm. we actually had, before I ask you, uh, we actually had a guy on the show from England named Aaron Millar, and he mm-hmm. actually invited Dave and I to go pub uh, hopping in, <laughs> in the UK, Whoa. which we are going to take him up on, by the way. <laughs> oh, you have, you have to do that. You know what? When, when I worked out of the NBC Bureau in London, we were on the second floor of a building and there was a pub down below. And the attitude for drinking on the job is different there, or at least was in the 80s. And once a week, the pub would send somebody up to collect all the glasses. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, now, Beer, Beer Geeks uh, was a series I syndicated and then went online with at Aura.com, which is a streaming service that Carlos Slim, the um, one of the world's richest men, he, he's yeah. a Mexican billionaire, he was friends with Larry King. Larry King got kicked off CNN. Carlos Slim started this streaming service to give Larry a place to put his show. Uh, so Beer Geeks ran on that for a while. It's currently nowhere. I'm, uh, I should put it back up. I should find a streamer for it. It was a wonderful show. Again, an opportunity to learn things because I enjoyed my beer, but I didn't really know much about it until I hooked up with Michael Ferguson, known in the beer trade as Mufasa from the Lion King. King. And uh, he's a master brewer and just a gregarious character. Mm. And with Michael, we went to different craft breweries around the country. And in the first couple of segments of the show, we'd make and taste beer. In the third segment of the show, we would go to a restaurant that was cooking with that beer. And the chef and Michael would make a dish with beer. And then the fourth act is we would have a pairing dinner using not just that dish and that beer, but a wide range of dishes and a wide range of beers from that brewery. And uh, the first thing I learned was that in some respects, beer pairs better with some foods than wine. does. Beer pairs much better with cheese. Oh, yeah. And there are so many misconceptions about beer. No, dark beer is not necessarily heavier or more alcoholic, or or uh, even darker and deeper in taste. It Every beer is unique. And I did learn the hard way early on that 
when when the beer is a Belgian triple, they are talking about triple the normal alcohol. Oh, that's what <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Six percent is out the window. <laughs> uh, no, you got mm-hmm. beers at eighteen. I mean, it's <laughs> it's insane. Uh, it was it was a great ride through a world that is far more complex than people realize. Beer is not accorded the respect that it's due as a beverage and as a beverage to be enjoyed with meals, as opposed to, hey, let's get a cold one and watch the ball game. <laughs> um, chances are that beer is too cold for you to taste it properly. Uh, the, the key takeaway is that when I see someone drinking beer from a bottle, I want to slap it out of his hand. <laughs> at least 40% of the taste of your beer comes from the aroma, which does not come out of a bottle the wow. way it should. Got to drink out of a, a glass. And uh, it was just, it was remarkable to see how many kinds of beer there are. Well, that that I... <laughs> Please, I, I've um, a friend of mine. Uh, we were going to open a all beer place in LA. This going back ten years before he got the acting bug, and mm. um, and I've seen him starring in everything since then. Uh, yeah, exact, absolutely nothing. Oh, well, okay, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you know, he thought he was a screenwriter. He wasn't, you know, and they, you know, we're no longer friends. But we had this great idea about opening up uh, our own little beer place. It was nothing but beer, beer, and whatever paired with it. And I got to tell you, I must have ran across 50,000 different kinds of beer. I had no clue what I was getting into. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because, for example, on the West Coast, you guys are into all of those super hoppy IPAs, which are far more bitter than they ought to be. And it's become some sort of macho test to drink the bitterest beer on Earth. They invented IPAs in Britain. They put hops in them to preserve them during the boat trip when they sent them to their occupational forces in India, and they won't drink anything as bitter as what you West Coast guys drink. (laughs) (laughs) Hence our pub hopping adventure coming up in the UK. (laughs) Uh, Enjoy, man. That's that's great. Well, I I think we're going to jump all over. Dave, got anything else? Just no. uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, wrong Dave. I'm sorry. Oh. Dave, you got anything else? <laughs> yeah. Go for it. He, he did that well, David. <laughs> if you enjoy captivating food history, you love food Americana. It's a great read. It's okay. on Amazon. Just that's good. And did, did, go did, did he pay you for that? No, he didn't. Oh, didn't pay it. me for that. I, <laughs> Give me your love, Venmo name. We're good. <laughs> Thank you very much. I love food. I love food. And I really, really, I'll, I'll tell you, as I was doing the research for the podcast, you know, it, it was a, it, it really wasn't uh eye opener for me. I really enjoyed, you know, you, you taught me a whole lot, you know, well, that's, I discovered that's nice about of food. You to say. Yes. Yes. Great, great book. Great read. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. That's that's really kind of you. Appreciate you, David Page. Been a pleasure. I hope someday we get you back and discuss your next book. I'll be here. You got it, my friend. Uh, thank you once again. And um, for those of you listening, uh, we will have, again, uh, Food Americana will be posted on our website with all the appropriate links so you can make Dave rich. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> on behalf of my dear friend David Cumberbatch, this is Michael Gordon Bennett saying we'll see you next time on another edition of Tripcast 360. Yeah.